0: You're listening to Captured and Celluloid. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And on this episode, we're going to do something that is just a little bit different. We're going to talk about movies, uh, rest assured. But we are, I guess, primarily going to switch our focus over on the back half of this episode to a TV show. And that TV show is Normal People. And the movies we'll be talking about will be films directed by Lenny Abramson, one of two directors who worked on Normal People. And this is going to be the first of a a series of episodes I can kind of see mapped out at the moment, but really one that could be ongoing, where we take a closer look at someone who's, I guess, more generally known as a movie director. Up until this point, anyway, who has made the switch to TV to try longer form storytelling, or I guess just that a um, slightly different approach to making you know, visual content. So this will be the first of a few. We'll have another one next week, more on that at the end. But first of all, let's get into the kind of conversation that people, you know, they either love to listen to or they hate, let's hope, more love than hate it. Do you think there's such thing as a movie director anymore? When you see is are there certain filmmakers, whether they be writers, directors, just certain voices that when you see them jump to TV, it strikes you in a way where you go, hmm, okay, that's that's different. That's a little unusual. Is it strange to have these kind of divides anymore? And I'm I'm guessing it's probably just people like me who would even think of this most watchers don't really care if someone's directed TV's mo TV mostly are movies and then what they're doing next but what do you, what do you think on that kind of delineation or eroding delineation between the two roles
1: i think there are still some directors out there where if you saw them pivot to tv even briefly it would be a little shocking like if if the irishman had been a mini series that that would have been something that I, I wouldn't have seen coming. So I don't think we'll see someone like Scorsese or uh, he has. What am I missing? Final. Oh God, I blocked that completely out of my <laughs> mind, apparently. All right. So <laughs> the, To answer your question, Adam, no, there is no such thing as just strictly a, a movie director anymore. There are people making films and some of them may be long form and turned into to miniseries or television series. Apparently that's, I mean, that's the direction that we seem to be heading is everywhere you look there's a new streaming service coming out and if they'll give you more money to create a a series rather than a a movie then i guess you're going to take their money and, and just see how much story you have to work with i guess it's more about telling the story that that a director wants to tell in as much time as it takes to tell that story rather than putting it into a box as this is a television series or this is a movie. Now it it drives me, it drives me crazy sometimes to hear people say, well, this is really just a movie. Yeah. Ten hour (laughs) movie. It's like, well, it, it's sure. But maybe if we stop looking in terms of movies and television series as distinctly different things in that a movie is up here and of a certain quality and a TV television series is a little less if we keep going in the trend where we don't think that way, then it doesn't really matter. You're creating something, and do I like it or do I not like it? Is it good or is it bad? I mean, it it doesn't really matter to me at this point. And I think more directors are, are showing that they don't care either.
0: It matters deeply to me. It does, in all seriousness, matter deeply to me. A no, 10 hour movie. It's coming. <laughs> the 10 hour movie thing is nonsense. I mean, don't say that. Just don't say that. Like, I don't know who at this point is so lacking in self-awareness that they don't know that, you know, about 80% of people who, like, do a mini series say that now. Like, it's not original. You're not saying something that's going to get people to lean forward and go, oh, really? You know, just treat it as a 10-hour movie. Plus, people not really into 10-hour movies. So if the story is going to take 10 hours, more often than not, there are some exceptions, very few, but you know, that's when it becomes TV. Now, I think you, you kind of hit an nail on the head right away. This is a market economics thing. I don't even know if it's that there's more money to be made in TV. It's just, you know, streamers would like 10 hours of content rather than two. People like to binge. They like to go from one thing to the other to the other. And you could basically string them along for longer if you've got a TV series. So I guess that's that's how the kind of... Netflixification of Hollywood has trickled out and now that we have I guess Prime have the the influence on this as well from early on but now that we have the likes of uh, Disney Plus, HBO Max and the Peacock it's just going to keep growing and growing we are going to see more of that I do think there is still major formal differences and it takes it takes a really strong command to to switch from one to the other and to get it right because there's been a lot of one of the things that i think a lot of people have talked about since you know we've got it's it's really netflix netflix are the people you point to but you can get a 12 or 13 episode season of something where it drags you know it doesn't need to be 12 or 13 episodes We've seen a little bit of a shift in this because Netflix themselves have realized that in their algorithms, they're giving shorter seasons than they used to. You frequently will find six episodes, eight episodes, even some that will be shorter. But I think you can get a director who comes across and it's like, oh, you've got this many hours, you're used to making movies and just kind of go with this. Like TV is still TV as much as it's not even shown on traditional TV for the most part anymore. So you've got to understand the different kind of... You've got to make episodes, is really what I'm saying here. I think this is the key thing that a, a, a filmmaker, and I'm talking, you know, cinema, movies, filmmaker, a director who primarily works in traditional film, comes across the TV. What they can't kind of start to imagine is that, oh, these episodes are just like... We're just progressing as part of a a bigger thing. The episode matters. Like this is when I, when I find a TV show I really like, it's generally because you know you have actual episodes. This is the difference, really. The form is one is episodic and the other is not. Uh, as much as Marvel and Star Wars and things like that try to blur the lines, that is your difference. And I I think it's interesting when you see primarily film directors come across the TV, who gets that right, who doesn't, and what the kind of what the results work out at overall. We are at a point where I think everyone is gonna do it, everyone's gonna try it. And you know what? There may be a lot of directors who they're just better at TV than they are at movies, or vice versa. I mean, that's already there's some really story TV directors who I wouldn't be crazy about their movies, or I don't feel they necessarily translate all that well in the kind of what is a small but still a pretty major shift from one form to the other. But it is interesting, like, that in this short space of time, I could think of we're starting with Abramson. I could think of three other film directors, acclaimed, whatever you wanna whatever you want to look at it, successful film directors. Directors who could probably get stuff made. I mean, nothing necessarily gets made easily anymore, but they could get movies made if they wanted to, who Within the space of a month to six weeks, I'll have series coming out that they've either like completely shaped from start to finish, that they're directing a major, major chunk of, or that they've kind of come up with the germ of the idea, dropped in, oh, set it up for someone else, and kind of ducked out. Whatever, whatever way that divide works, it's interesting that this is the direction people are going in. We'll get a lot into, I guess, how that works out as we progress through. But for me, there's still there's still a real difference between the two, and even in my mindset and sitting down to watch one or the other, I think is very different.
1: I think you might have talked me into that because as you, as you were going through through your statement, I of course, like we all do as human beings, was thinking about myself, and we've we make a joke and of this on this podcast about how you know I need to catch up on movies, how I don't I don't see as many movies as I should. I'm doing better lately, but I think that's even more true for me about television series. I mean, I see. Way more movies than I do watch watch TV series. and 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 it's because of that, what you said, adam, it's it's episodic. And if you've got a bunch of filler episodes, why do I want to waste twelve hours of my time watching a season of a TV show that's mediocre when I could go back through the criterion channel and watch all all of the best movies of all time that I miss? So it's it's a commitment you have to make. and there's there's a difference between a movie, a television series, and then also a mini series. I'm much more drawn to the idea of these, self-contained one season stories where a creative person has a story they want to tell in mind and they tell it in that finite story. And I don't have to war- wonder, Oh, is this going to get canceled or is it going to be picked up for a season two? So the, the idea of the mini series, which has really become popularized in, in the last, I don't know, five or six years off the top of my head, things like uh, escape from Dana Mora um, what true detective I'm sure was originally supposed to be and, and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's interesting that you say that there are different, uh, kind of beats that you have to hit in terms of making a movie or, or a television series and even a miniseries. So there's just so many different ways to, to tell a story through film nowadays, Adam, and it's interesting to see who's taking advantage of which avenues.
0: Sure, and it's, it's all about, you know, can the creative person at the at the it, can they recognize which avenue suits their work best? Like, if your idea is best told over the course of 10 hours and 10 episodes and you understand that by telling it that way you've got certain notes you have to hit you out that's absolutely the way you should tell it and on the flip side if it's something that really should be told in two hours as one one concrete consolidated piece it's 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 a whole thing well then it's a movie and it, that's the interesting thing and i guess on the side of people who are green lighting and producing this which Particularly with the streamers, it's just, you know, there's a content rush. It's We need stuff. So a little bit looser than things would ever have been, particularly with networks. You've got more buyers in the market than ever. And that has its own kind of impact on how that works. But it's it's about producers. It's about writers. It's about directors. And whatever way an idea is conceived, whatever way it kind of ends up packaged together, you got to recognize, okay, well, what is this? Where do I go? What do I start this as? Because, you know, I, I even think sometimes you get things that are, you know, I'll I'll give an example. I might as well name an example. El Camino. Did you watch El Camino?
1: Adam, I love Breaking Bad. Still, if not, El Camino, it? yeah, I didn't need it. Does that not say something? It, yeah, I mean, it goes back to to what we were ju- you were just saying is I felt the story was told.
0: If that was a six-episode new season of Breaking Bad... I probably would have like, been more
1: inclined to watch it.
0: If it's Jesse's story, and they're billing it as Breaking Bad season eight? I actually, I can't remember how many six, seasons of six Breaking Six or Bad seven,
1: that's what it would have been, but I I yeah, can't remember either.
0: I think your relationship to it would have been different. You'd be like, new season of Breaking Bad, I've got to watch that. Where a Breaking Bad movie, and like Vince Gilligan's an immensely talented writer, and a really really accomplished director that like i don't think that's a movie i think if anyone watches that it's not a it's not what a movie is maybe some people will think i'm just talking nonsense here and being like what do you mean it's not what a movie is what's the difference but it, it's kind of it's shapeless in a way that is very oh we've got this amount of time a story and we're we're doing this for this particular audience rather than this function like, there is something about that that is interesting to me. I'm curious, the Sopranos prequel movie, which was originally supposed to be out this summer. I don't know what way. It's obviously it's HBO's thing. They may just show it on HBO. I don't know if they planned a theatrical release. Uh, it's Saints in New York, if I'm remembering correctly, is the title for it. Like, what is that like? It's It's maybe detached enough from the actual subject matter that it can be a movie, and it could be a movie and stand on its own footing. My gut is it's probably going to feel like just this weird shapeless thing that's like a companion to the show is really like, what is it? It just it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And that is where the divide still exists. Anyway, though, we are going to talk about a director who has mostly made films, not exclusively, but mostly made films, certainly been most successful in making films and has now been one of the key key figures in bringing together one of the most successful TV shows on the planet at the moment. Certainly one of the most talked about. And that is Lenny Abramson, uh, Irish director, which this is not something we get a chance to do very often, but it's just, it's fallen in my, in my lap here. Andrew, the whole world is talking about something that is incredibly Irish. So here we are. We're going to talk a lot about my native land in the next hour or so.
1: This is your moment.
0: Okay, so Lenny Abramson, not the most well-known director worldwide. Certainly, I would have more familiarity with him in a general sense, because his early movies here would have been relatively successful, as successful as any kind of domestic film tends to be in Ireland. And then, obviously, he did go on to be nominated for an Academy Award for Room. Pretty big deal. So... I knew about him. You're an avid film watcher. Yes. Having caught up on all of the things you didn't watch on our Netflix recommendations, right? So we'll...
1: Totally complete. I haven't at all been <laughs> learning about pre, uh, pre-Christian Buehl's like Borussia Dortmund the last week. Not at all. All movies.
0: So what, if anything, did you know about him beforehand?
1: My familiarity with him was strictly room going into this. Uh, I remember, so I started uh, reading room. At the, at the time uh, of those Oscars leading up to that, but before I planned on seeing the movie, couldn't make it through it. So we'll get into that a little bit later and it'll speak to one of the interesting things about the way he adapts work. I saw Room. Remember thinking that it wasn't quite up to par with some of the other Best Picture nominees that year, but it was carried by a really intense uh, Brie Larson performance. That was pretty much the only familiarity with I had with Lenny Abramson. I, I do also remember the trailer for Frank stood out in my mind as well, because if, if that's something that that you just hear a little bit about, it's something that sticks with you just because of how peculiar that movie is and how it comes across when you see it, like the trailer of it without knowing anything about it. But, but that was really it. And as I started going through and watching some of his movies that I had missed, I saw part of the reason why is that his earlier films are are pretty tough to access in in America legally and my computers to a point where I I'm sure if I stream something illegally, it might explode. You can't take the risk. Correct. So (laughs) he was uh, someone that I didn't know a lot about. And after diving into this a little bit, I'm definitely more intrigued because while normal people was really the only thing that blew me away, there were some things I really liked about um, his films and some things that, that missed the mark for me. But overall, he's he's someone that I'm really intrigued by now moving forward.
0: Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about Abramson is in some ways he's the kind of director that there aren't a whole lot of anymore with the way that the industry has kind of pivoted. You have a lot of kind of auteurist directors who are writers and directors of all of their own work and that's how you get your voice out there. You know, you have to write something brilliant. You then have to say, well, the only way this is getting made is if I'm directing it. And that seems to be the way that most people could get themselves to a position where, for example, you end up nominated for an Academy award where Abramson is kind of like, I I don't want to put it. The term sounds disparaging. It's not, it's not meant to be pejorative in this context, but he is like a director for hire. Now, the way his movies come together is interesting. He has a very strong relationship with Element Pictures, who would be the, the major kind of production company in Ireland now, and with Ed Geine, who would be the most significant producer in the country. Um, they have collaborated a lot with people like Jorgis Lanthimos and collaborated the entire way through lenny abramson's career with him so abramson and gyne are good friends going back to their time in trinity college together more on trinity later and basically everything comes with them as a package so he's he's got this really strong relationship and this incredible kind of i guess trust and understanding with a producer which in its own right is very rare and that producer is pretty significant in terms of you know european filmmakers looking to get movies made so without him being a writer he kind of comes to this through a different kind of a different kind of route and he makes his first film in his first feature film gets released anyway in 2004 we made a year two years before that and that's adam and paul his first three movies are all shot in ireland so adam and paul is i think just set across the course of a day and it's it's following around two heroin addicts as they basically troll around the city trying to find any way to score it is both very funny and unbelievably grim like very very grim a very kind of a strange but impressive tonal mix and balance that you don't see very often and i think would maybe leave a lot of people not too sure how to feel about it, but it's certainly doing something. It's a, it's a pretty impressive it's a pretty impressive film just in terms of how it handles everything it's got going on there. So that was his debut, was pretty well acclaimed here. He then went on to direct Garage, which Garage and it is Garage, I mean you may you may have thought it was pronounced differently, but it's Garage. Just to get that on the record.
1: I feel personally attacked. <laughs>
0: Well, I can only personally attack you, but I'm sure there's other people listening too. But Garage is a movie then, which again, I guess, takes him to putting Ireland, his native country, under his lens. In this case, looking at a much more rural story. And I guess the ideas of isolation and something of the split that still exists in in modern Ireland, where you've got some very rural areas where people can live very different lives to what you will see in his other movies, which it's interesting even, I think, the direction his movies have taken because you can really see the pieces of normal people in all of them. I mean, he has a really urban movie. He has a rural movie. Then his next film comes in 2012, again, um, shot and set in Ireland, What Richard Did, which is uh, an adaptation of a book which was a loosely fictionalized account novelization of a story that was very big news in ireland around the turn of the century very early 2000s the club annabelle case as it was known about a group of privately educated rugby playing young men and a tragic event i've just realized i should probably pare back on the details there so not to spoil that movie in case anyone wants to go listen but a tragic event that happens involving all of them that was again I, th- I think in terms of filmmaking a step up for him also really really well acclaimed and that gave him the freedom to move on to something that was a little bit more ambitious and certainly more strange that being frank a 2014 film with michael fassbender donald gleason maggie gyllenhaal scoop McNary. I don't know how to describe Frank for people who just don't know. I'm guessing you had no familiarity with Frank Sidebottom, the character and um, with the papier-mâché head.
1: You would be correct in guessing that.
0: Right. So there's a, there's a cultural element there too, but there was a kind of a visual familiarity to people, UK and Ireland with that movie, we'll say, that would have and did add a level of kind of I'm talking modest, it's a very strange movie, it's an indie movie, but a level of commerciality that wouldn't have been there otherwise, so there was kind of an awareness of, okay, this is about this, and he did something completely different with that big-name cast, and that then led him into Room in 2015, brought him his Oscar nomination, as you mentioned already, a film that's really, I guess, powered by Brie Larson and... Also by Jacob Tremblay, I think it's it's fair to say. I, I don't like saying I have mixed feelings about Jacob Tremblay, considering he's probably at most, like, 12 now. <laughs> um, but he's got a very specific screen presence that I think was maybe best utilized in Room, and he was certainly the right fit for that. And following on from Room, he directed The Little Stranger, starring Donald Gleeson, which is kind of a, I don't know, a gothic mood piece. Like a period set Gothic ghost story of sorts. That, do you think that's a fair way of describing it?
1: That's the perfect way to describe it. It's also a weird kind of showpiece for Donald gleason in a way that I didn't really see coming, and I don't know how to describe it without spoiling it. Spoiling it. It's just very strange. It's I have mixed feelings about that movie too. It's just it's really tough to describe in in one phrase. But Gothic ghost story, sniveling white guy story as well. <laughs>
0: That was the last movie that led him into Normal People. Before Normal People, uh, I mean, the only TV series that he's really kind of shepherded from start to finish was Prosperity, which was a four part drama kind of chronicling the the economic crash and a lot of the the kind of effects all around that back in the mid 2000s. That was directed entirely by him, written entirely by Marco Halloran, who is a very kind of renowned screenwriter here in ireland and was the screenwriter that abramson worked on with both adam and paul and garage and i have never seen that and it's incredibly difficult to see although i've heard it is very very good so i'll continue to try and seek that out but i have not seen it so he has done some tv before but this is again this is someone for for as much as he may not be a household name, um, certainly compared to some of the other people we're going to talk about in the, the weeks ahead who have dived into directing TV but have mostly worked in movies, this is someone who was an Academy Award nominee, and this is now where he finds himself. Your overall impression, so I know you've watched a few of his movies. What were your takeaways from getting to know him a little bit better as a filmmaker?
1: So having not seen Garage or Adam and Paul...
0: Wow, even saying garage is a struggle for you. It is. See, this is interesting because I would struggle to say it the way you say it.
1: Garage. Ooh. I don't I don't know what to do. Anyway, uh, what I found <clears throat> from the watching the selection of, of movies that I have seen from him is that I think he succeeds most when his stories are are centered on character rather than plot. And we'll get to that I think, with normal people later, but my, my favorite of the ones that I watched uh, throughout the last few days was R- What Richard Did, and that it was telling a specific story about a specific group of people and a specific type of person. And it really focused in on Richard and his, his group of fr- friends, the the rugby uh, schoolboys, for lack of a better term, and really made you feel like you were a part of their world. And it's it's very specifically about these types of characters. And it was a type of person that I didn't have too much familiarity with not being from Ireland. I mean, I have the, the kind of cliched version that I have of Americans, but, but not this particular story. So that was really interesting to me as it was hyper-focused on those characters and tells a story about when privilege goes from, from harmless to harmful (laughs) based on, uh, you know, the, the events you discussed. I think in, in this, movie I, we were talking offline he, he really works well with actors and when he's molding those characters i mean he pulls great performances out of jack rainer and, and then also lars mickelson who i or michelson mickelson whatever you know how this goes with pronunciation mickelson you, you were there perfect who i only remembered from um house of cards actually he plays the russian president petrov in house of cards
0: he, he is mad's brother as well
1: Oh, wow. Well, there you go. I should have probably seen that just by the name and that they have the same face. But other than that, um, yeah, I thought he, he has a knack for for pulling those really specific performances out of actors when he has those fully rounded characters. And I also thought he accomplished that in, in the first half of, of Frank, when, when the story is mostly focused on spending time with this weirdo group of idiosyncratic characters musicians and a wannabe who's trying to get into their world I think it's actually a, a kind of a fun and interesting movie and then the third act of the movie kind of dives more into plot and is trying to be a little more self-serious and tell a quote unquote important story and that's where it veers, veers off course so it's it's tough to really talk about him broadly because I have uh, conflicting thoughts about his movies. I think he's done a lot of good work here and there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't really land for me.
0: I think he's a really good director and I, I think he's a really good director without necessarily all of his work. It's not even a landing for me, just being what I'm into, I think is a part of this. Like, I, I love really visual kind of bombastic filmmakers and he is not that kind of director. He has these brief moments where there's just these flourishes where you go, wow, okay, so that is in there, he can do that. But I think a lot of the time his his style is very restrained, and that isn't a bad thing because I think often the best of his movies comes out from his ability to know when the direction should be really restrained, and that that even comes out in normal people. I I think he to me seems like and anecdotally anything you read from anyone who's worked on him, he seems like an actor's director, and he seems like someone who will almost universally get great performances, if not like career best-ish performances out of some of his his actors. Now, a part of that does obviously depend on the material as well. But I think there are multiple instances where you're like, okay, he's tapped into something really different and interesting with that person, maybe not elsewhere. Like uh, even Brie Larson, I think is interesting because Brie Larson really burst on the scene in terms of profile, with Room and obviously won the Oscar for Best Actress and has just kind of had a challenging time since then. Like, obviously she's been Captain Marvel and she has done some other good work, but I don't think she's necessarily put in the kind of performance that people thought would be like a very routine thing for her after that. Maybe it's too soon to fully judge that, but I do think there is something that he seems to have, helped her to bring to the screen in that particular movie that is of note. And you you mentioned kind of just the character base. I think the more personal the work is, I don't necessarily even mean that it's like he can relate to it personally, but the more you can view the story like through the prism of okay, this character, we're zooming in on this character, and plot isn't the main thing. I think the more personal it gets the better. And where I would say the more personal to him, where that does come into it is I mean, Room is the thing he's been Oscar nominated for. It's the one that... The movie that certainly got the most attention. But to me, like, universally, I think his best work is set in Ireland. And it's with him turning his eye to Ireland, which obviously he knows better than than any of the other places that he has kind of shot movies, set movies, kind of chronicle life there. He is... I don't want to say the definitive, but it's very close to it. He's certainly the most influential chronicler of modern Ireland that there is in an industry here that is healthy but small and doesn't necessarily always have kind of breakout and crossover. He has made some really good and interesting movies that have kind of shone a light on all different elements of Irish life. Like, not that I'd say to you, it's kind of, it's, I think it's maybe a good thing that you couldn't see Adam and Paul and garage because they are incredibly Irish, but they're also incredibly Irish in two entirely different ways. Like I, I'm i part of me would be curious if you had seen them just to how you receive that and to how that, I guess meshes with your, your vision of what Ireland is. Because even that, I mean, we've talked about this before, obviously, yeah a lot of your opinions of Ireland or even now your screen opinions of Ireland opinions come a lot of the stuff you'll know about comes through knowing me and talk to me. And I'm, you know, I'm from Dublin and based in the area around Dublin. So a lot of my experience is centered around that. Then you love a movie like once you've seen, you've read normal people. You've now seen the series. Like all of that is kind of one version of, of not just Ireland, but of Dublin. Then there's a much grittier version of Dublin, which certainly comes across in Adam and Paul. Then you've got a rural lifestyle, which is it's it's very much detached from my experience. So even I find it difficult, but it's it's also uniquely Irish. It's not like it's not like the kind of rural experience even that you would see in the US. And what impresses me with him is he has an ability to tap into all of these different things. And as we get to when we talk about normal people, I actually think he kind of hits on nearly all of those things i mean we don't really get the grittier side of dublin at all that would take away from what normal people is and maybe uh decrease its chances of being this global success it doesn't mesh with the story but we certainly get you know this kind of this divide we do have in the country where we've got kind of two three okay we could stretch it to four cities one of them really only being major having this really lopsided small island where you know dublin is the center of everything and you have people from all over the country who that's where they end up coming to it, it kind of creates an interesting social dynamic and he's really astute at tapping into that and i think understanding how that works so for me part of that is interesting because you know This is what happens, really, to any non-American filmmaker, certainly from an English-speaking country, whether it's the UK or Australia. You know, if you make a few low budget features at home, get a little bit of success, all of a sudden you're making a Hollywood movie, which technically Room is and technically it isn't. I mean, it was still Irish-produced. It was still produced by Element, But, you know, it's from a Canadian novel... Um, I think may have been shot in Canada, but then distributed by A24 and massive push in that sense. And you end up multiple Oscar nominees, all of that stuff. And he hasn't come back to make a movie here since. And I find that interesting, particularly when you see normal people, and you see what works. So for me, part of my thing, and I think you kind of tapped into when he goes to character, that certainly brings out his strengths. But I think it's also, he has a very keen eye for something. And it's like, there's elements of melodrama in his work. There's certainly elements of social realism. There's times in his movies where you're like, he wants to really break out and make this slow cinema. It doesn't quite get there, but you're like, this really could be, you know, that not a lot happens for a long time. I think something that normal people has been praised for and is maybe even more unusual in TV, and particularly TV where episodes are like, 25 to 30 minutes long is the camera just frequently holds and lingers and stays in a space and just basically witnesses and enjoys the people it's looking at. That's not all that common in TV, but it's certainly a feature of his movies. Like he's not afraid of taking time and taking a, a path with it. I was flicking through the various IMDB pages for his movies and something that I would never put any stock in, but it's just kind of interesting to see well, how is this person like, just how is this being received, particularly outside of Ireland? And a common complaint in like IMDb user reviews for his movies is how slow they are. And like, this is so slow, nothing happens, it's incredibly boring. And I saw that and I started to go, I don't agree that it's boring. It's certainly not slow by the standards of what I would consider slow, but you can see in his movies, there's his patience, there's his kind of openness to really kind of, okay, let's just park here and let's explore this. He's not kind of driven in a propulsive way to push plot forward and to rapidly move the camera. Like he doesn't really move the camera at all for the most part. And yet with that, occasionally there are these just beautiful shots Maybe not as much as I'd like. I, I think down the line, there's probably a movie where he kind of really breaks loose and it's kind of more visually bold than anything else he's done. And you get kind of a, a perfect storm of the elements that have all been really well executed in a lot of his movies to date. I don't think that's happened yet. If it has happened, it's probably happened to normal people, though.
1: It's interesting that you say that. There's There was a Facebook group uh, dedicated to a podcast I won't name. No free ads anymore. Uh, you can
0: name. You can name. I didn't. This sounds like we had a stern conversation off <laughs> <air, which> there. <doesn't... laughs> you can name whatever podcast and uh, you can, you know, collect your royalties on the side. I have no problem with this, Andrew. Uh,
1: okay. I just thought it was a good joke. But anyway, uh, um, there was a, a conversation about uh, people not getting normal people, and that was one of their criticisms, the slowness, and I had to restrain myself uh, for not jumping in and just yelling at people. Um, That's been a real constant problem for me uh, lately, Adam, is restraining myself from yelling at people on Facebook.
0: You're Uh, back online. That's what's happened there. Welcome back online.
1: uh, I need to get offline. Uh, (laughs) Visually, I, I do agree that the stillness does work for him, and I liked it he doesn't have an issue being patient with his filmmaking. I will say that for a director that's not incredibly visual, I will say that the little stranger, which I watched today is, is probably his best looking movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the the costume design and set design is great. And then there is that, that stillness and those, those lingering shots. And I think that, that nature of his filmmaking also works really well in certain parts of Frank, as weird as it is to say, we've got a lot of these, kind of longing just quiet shots of Michael Fassbender and a paper mache mask that just highlights the absurdity of the situation and that's that's a subtle thing and and not really something that I would normally even pick up on but it it's something that was most definitely a choice and and really works for what it's trying
0: to accomplish
1: you know for There's me
0: quite stagey right about like it, it's it feels to me like a director where I expect like a deep-rooted, theater background and that is that is not the case at all from anything i know of him from anything i've read online i don't think he has any theater experience that is
1: that is really interesting to hear you say that because that's one of the things that i i kept thinking while watching a little stranger today in particular is that this feels almost like a play that we've been kind Mm -hmm. of dropped in on another thing so i was reading earlier today some some kind of breakdowns about room and i feel like i didn't give him enough credit the first time I saw it for some of the decisions he made. I mean, the way that the room itself is shot when it's coming from the little boy's perspective, rather than Brie Larson's perspective or the shot from the end of the film, when they go back to the room, I mean, when, when it's through his eyes, it's, it's almost not quite as compact and small because this, no, it, it's
0: cavernous. Like it's one of the opening shots of the movie, right? Is him on his back yep. and it's like looking out through the window. And I mean, Yeah, it's it's entirely this is interesting because it's something I'll even come back to in normal people. I think the one of the places where he really seems to kind of make distinct and conscious choices is in terms of perspective. And how exactly am I going to communicate perspective in a visual sense? Like there's there's a very specific choice in normal people that I think. Is maybe because you see so much of it and he sets the tone then for episodes later, even that aren't directed by him. But it's to me, it's his boldest visual choice. But it again comes into perspective. Like there is again, though, I think this maybe speaks to the kind of director he is, and it's probably something that even I, I do appreciate and even talking about it more, I start to appreciate it more and more. But it's just not my it's not my go to. I'm not saying that all I want is like a really kind of flashy director, but I I do I do really like a director who. It's just kind of working the camera. I don't necessarily mean that in terms of moving the camera, but just working the camera at every possible opportunity to advance the movie. Now, that includes also knowing when you don't do anything with it. I don't feel like that is him, but when he does like really play with the camera or make pretty striking and obvious choices with the camera... They're always to serve his character, which again speaks to, I think, his main focus and what he does best.
1: Yeah, and that's, I mean, for me, things like that aren't aren't quite as important just because, uh, as we've <laughs> discussed from time to time here, my favorite kind of movies are just people in rooms talking. And th- that's one thing that's incredibly important about normal people. That's a, a big aspect of, of what Richard did and then the aspects that I like about Frank. So when he's just going about it that way, I think he really shines, and I also think that he's someone that is kind of partially subject to the source material that he has. When he's got mm-hmm. something great to work with, he can he can come up with something great, and it's it's interesting. I would if if he had found a, a writing partner that he really worked well with and collaborated with frequently, it would have been interesting to see what types of original stories he he was able to tell because when you do have to adapt something that can be a difficult challenge to really leave your stamp on it. And so I think he's been more successful in in some things than others from that regard. But yeah, he's getting kind of a first introduction to him through this project. He's someone that I'm really intrigued to see what he does moving forward.
0: Yeah. I think this is a really good time to do this for that reason too, because unlike a lot of other kind of episodes we do or times when we come to focus on a filmmaker where like they've all, they've already like really arrived, obviously arrived in a massive way. Like he has, again, this is an Oscar nominated director, but I do, I do think coming out of whatever, uh, whatever coming out of all of this strangest means when production gets back to normal and any kind of flow of movies of TV Returns in the next whatever um months, year, eighteen months, whatever it turns out to be. I think the success of normal people and probably the number of people who saw it and appreciated it, I think, will open some doors for him to maybe just have more creative freedom than ever before. Now he's he's also a director who I do know he has like there's a lot of things in the pipeline at the moment. He has a. A boxing movie that he signed on to do just after Room, I think, like when the uh, you've just been nominated for an Oscar stuff was at its peak. He signed on to uh, a boxing drama, which sounded really, really interesting. Now, again, it depends on what way ultimately the script plays out and just how kind of conventional that is or not. But that's a story that I won't I won't say too much about because it becomes a movie. I don't know. Uh, It's I could say something right now which would essentially spoil that movie. It's based on a true story. But that sounds really interesting. He's a few other things going, but I think he's someone who normal people should probably give even more I guess freedom to choose what he wants to do and maybe some more offers and more diverse offers than he's ever had before. Whether he's interested in that, I don't know, because he he doesn't write his own stuff, but as I alluded to, his relationship with Ed Gine and Element Pictures it does mean he's been like involved from ground level at basically everything he's done, so he he has been able to exercise a kind of creative control and authorial control that directors don't necessarily always get the chance to do. So he is probably quite content to kind of keep working with an atmosphere, see what they can acquire, see what kind of what kind of scripts come across, and that they get made, but hey, we'll see what happens. Also, I mean, we're about to pivot into Normal People, but he has got the adaptation of Conversations with Friends, which is Sally Rooney's first novel. He's attached to Direct, and um, the same team are all kind of locked in to work on that, too. So that, that may be what he ends up shooting next, based on the success of Normal People. I wouldn't be shocked.
1: Well, my, my copy of that is still in transit, because it's been deemed as non-essential, which it is clearly not, so I have no complaints <laughs> about that, but it sounds like I I'll, I'll have time this time to, to to read that I don't I don't have to rush uh, like I did with normal people.
0: All right, normal people uh, I'll give a very kind of general intro to normal people the TV show and then we can we could talk about it just more generally. I mean we will talk about some of what Abramson's done but also we'll talk about the performances we'll talk about I guess the content of the show itself and we'll also talk about uh, what's like nothing short of uh, a Sally Rooney phenomenon at this point. Uh, normal people the tv series came about because um because of the streaming wars really and because of just this you know ceaseless appetite for content um the story as it has been told in their various interviews over the last kind of couple of weeks or so is before the novel was even published a copy of it came across ed guyney's desk at element pictures he read it in like one sitting he sent it straight on to Lenny Abramson. He said, you need to read this. Lenny Abramson read it. Um, they then brought a pitch to the BBC saying, if you're in on this, if you're agreeing to do this, this is a pitch before they had bought the rights. We have a package together. Lenny will direct, will produce. Would you show it? The BBC said yes. They went back to Sally Rooney with a package that was pretty impressive. He said, okay, here's, you know, Oscar-nominated director, BBC guaranteed to air it, and they ultimately won out out in what would have been a very competitive bidding process for the rights to that book. So from there, Sally Rooney played a part in adapting her own novel. Alice Birch, a playwright, came in. She did some work. I believe Mark O'Roe wrote just the last episode. And then along with Lenny Abramson... Who directed the first six episodes? The the six episodes at the back half of the series were directed by Hetty MacDonald. Um Hetty MacDonald has done quite a bit of TV in the UK. She's done stuff like Doctor Who. I think she did Howard's End. I hope I'm not mixing that up. She's certainly some period kind of I'm I'm now I'm gonna sound dismissive of period dramas, I sharpen. Necessarily my thing, but some kind of period thing. And she is a director who does have a a storied background in theatre as well. She came out and directed the back half. So that is essentially how normal people came together from a production standpoint. As for us, and when we're to talk about normal people, when all of this coronavirus craziness started, when lockdown began, I decided, you know what, it's time to start reading. You know, that thing that you once did and haven't done in years, Adam, it's time to start reading. So I, I ordered a ton of books and I am slowly but surely making progress through them. One of the books I ordered was Sally Rooney's Normal People in part because I knew this adaptation was coming and I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. I know that book is a big deal. I'm going to want to watch the series. Maybe I'll read it. I read it in close to one sitting. I told you all about it told you to buy it you bought it you read it in a pretty short space of time too and here we are Andrew so your, I will we start with the like very briefly we're not going go into it but start with the novel like your thoughts of normal people and even though you didn't have that long like there was a week or whatever before you saw this two weeks where you had the characters in your head from the page where we didn't know what the adaptation was going to look like exactly So, I don't know, how did you feel about the book to begin with? I think it's the best place for us to set up before we get into the TV show.
1: I loved the book. I couldn't put it down. Uh, Like you, it was probably two, almost three sittings. It was because I kind of had to parcel it out for myself. I had to say, I'm going to go do something else. I don't want to, you know, just knock this out in in one day and and be done with it. I wanted to spend a little more time with these characters and, and think about them a little more while I wasn't reading it. And like we said with what I like about some of his other work is this really is a story about characters and and the specific situation they find themselves in and how they <laughs> react to the situations of their lives. It's as uh, as we've had conversations with before, it's a very specifically Irish story, but it's also a story that's relatable to anyone in particular, someone that went to high school and, and college during the, the time period that, that you and I did. You know, we're, we're in our late 20s. We were, were 2000s teenagers listening to, to Kanye and, and uh, drinking in people's basements, in my case, and uh, worrying about what our friends thought about us and, and what kind of girls we were dating and that sort of thing. So it's it's a very specific story, but also a very relatable story. Beyond also that, i
0: mean it, timeline wise it lines up very closely for bogus
1: it, it really does i mean the references in, in the novel in particular um as the television show takes a few liberties with that are are pinpoint to to what i remember growing up but none of that matters if you don't have characters that you just absolutely fall in love with and i think that's why this spoke to so many people is because connell and and marianne are are such fascinating characters in incredibly different ways and the way that they come together and interact with each other feels real and feels authentic
0: yeah i agree with that our characters as you have just mentioned them i mean normal people really only centers around these two people and that is that is what it's about like there are other characters who have their moments and come up through the course of both The novel and the TV series, but it essentially centers around Marianne Sheridan and Connell Waldron. Two teenagers into then their early 20s, over a three and a half year period that sees them finish secondary school in Sligo, a rural area in the west of Ireland, and then both move to the opposite coast. Not that it's that far. This is not like a U.S. east west coast move. Uh, but moved to the opposite coast and moved to Dublin to go to Trinity College and start their time in university. So uh, we always seem to be talking about coming of age and things that we like. It is certainly a genre that I think when it's executed as well as it can be is something that I don't think just appeals to us. I think just generally it's it's a universal experience, right? It's something we can we can all identify with.
1: We're also probably longing for our lost youth, Adam.
0: But does does this mean we're getting old? Is that it's not really the fact that we keep talking about coming of age movies and stuff.
1: Definitely part of it.
0: <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's a, you could have saved that reality for me for when we finished recording. Um, <laughs> but this is essentially the journey of those two characters, their relationship to each other. It is a romance. It's also not a romance in a lot of ways. They have a very complicated relationship. And I think it, it speaks to the kind of the dynamics of any relationship, but also the kind of the elements to factor into two people at that kind of age just trying to figure anything out really there's there's a lot of
1: first love type of stuff but there's also a lot of this is the first time someone's actually understood me and that i've been truly able to be myself with it's like it's like when you really realize that oh someone gets me (laughs) <laughs> is for a lack of a better term it's 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 kind of that whole thing so i feel like as we go through the novel and their their romance develops and undevelops and so on and so forth you still get the sense that no matter what these are two people that need to have one another in their lives so even if it wasn't a romance or a love story it's really like you said a story about relationships and friendship in an inside and outside of a romance
0: yeah they, they figured themselves out through each other like that's the That's kind of the true line of this. And that happens in a variety of different ways over a period of time, where I guess both of them change in terms of who they are, how they feel about themselves, about others. I guess their own confidence, their own comfort in their surroundings and their own skin, all that stuff kind of plays into it. And then, kind of being balanced on top of all of that is, you know, the intensity of their own bond and relationship and the feelings they have for each other, which. Not an easy thing to balance. There's a lot going on at that kind of time in people's lives. And in this particular case, um, even more than the average. Okay, that's kind of an intro. So to get into some more detail. I don't know I don't know if we're gonna are we gonna spoil this? Like are we gonna talk specifically about the end? I'm not sure if we need to.
1: I, I don't think we have to, to spoil it. I think there's enough there without that.
0: I think the things we wanna talk about will keep us away from that. So Um, let's generally call this spoiler-free, and if something comes up, we'll flag it up. What I guess I find most interesting about this, this is incredibly Irish, like really specifically Irish, really specific to two kinds of experience here. One, the rural experience. Two, then the experience in our main urban centre of Dublin. Um, You could say, and I certainly know people who it would be true to their overall experience, or maybe they're from... Uh, the West and they come to Dublin and they have a lot of stuff to figure out and they're figuring out a way from home and it's just, you get all of this thrown up. You get the cultural difference, you get everything, and the class differences, they all come to the fore. So there's a lot of that going on here. And I just even think in terms of the way they speak to each other, the way they process emotion, their feelings, I'll be careful what I say. I don't know who listens to this, Andrew, so I won't get into too many autobiographical specifics
1: Oh boy, are you are you about to to spill the tea? I'm excited about no, this. I,
0: no, I'm not. This will say I don't know who listens, <laughs> but to me, there are things in this where I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, we talked a little about this privately, but I feel like there's elements of their relationship, even in terms of how they communicate, how often they struggle to communicate, even I guess the the school dynamics that so to me would feel even more Irish than some other things. People talk a lot about seeing themselves on screen. I had never had that feeling before, but I'd never found it to be a big deal, perhaps in part because I hadn't. I watch normal people and I was like, okay, I'm not any of these people, but I know all of them. I, I know all of them. I could put names to who they are over different periods of my life. I know the places they're at. And that, to me, was something quite, striking and unusual and certainly kind of i guess emboldened my relationship with the show like to me this is this is the best portrayal of modern ireland particularly as a young person that has ever been captured on screen so where i come at that even more so than the book is i see this thing that is super specific and like in theory should have a really small audience and it's not entirely an Irish cast. I mean, one of the leads is English, but doing an Irish accent. The characters are nearly all Irish in the show. A lot of Irish people creatively working on it, from Lenny Abramson to uh, Ed Geney producing to someone like Stephen Renick's composing. like, and if they're not Irish, they tend to be British. So again, culturally closer. And, you know, the kind of the kind of bubble that usually this sort of crossover could happen within, like, you know, not entirely unprecedented for something Irish to have a cultural impact in the UK. There's enough familiarity. What I find striking though is just how warmly received that even undersells it, how beloved this has been kind of around the world from a critical perspective. I think also just as a general consensus among viewers, I'm somewhat surprised by how much of this hits home, by how much of this, you know, just instantly makes sense that people don't question. I guess if it's, for example, the Debs, I guess the Debs is a close enough approximation to the prom that any American can recognize that and just kind of go, yeah, okay, I've got it. But there is a lot in here that is super specific and yet it clearly has resonated wider. You're an example of a person who isn't directly connected to the kind of people in this. Not entirely, I'm sure in some ways you can identify people like them, but the specific kind of Irish nature of it and of the places in it. And it's connected with you. Why do you think that is? What is it about this that is making it a kind of a sensation? Because I struggle even to think, if I was to think of other English-speaking countries, let's take Australia. Like, me, as me, I know Australian TV shows that have been quite successful, and I've seen some, and Australian movies, whatever, they would have a bigger industry than Ireland too, but it it doesn't feel like anything like that ever really hits in this way. British stuff, sure. I mean, uh, something of a comparison to this, not that the shows are the same, but in terms of just kind of making an impact in the US is Fleabag. Is it just something about the way TV has changed? Is it something with the access, with streaming? Is there something with the way this has taken hold in terms of, you know, our current situation where people are just... literally captive audiences? What do you think is the factor that has made this something that works for me who can kind of very clearly see it as real life and will work with you for someone who you can relate to the story, but there should be details also that aren't as readily accessible to you?
1: I think it's such a universal story that the details don't matter. I'm going to be honest, The, the social dynamics and the relationship between the characters, especially and the secondary school or in my case, high school aspect of it, just very extremely, they ring true, especially for small town American life, we'll call it. I mean, you're in a situation where you're in friend groups with people because you've been in the same proximity as one another your entire lives. So just by nature of that, you're friends and you have the little cliques that develop within that you're talking shit to each other you're bullying the kids that you deem to be weird and that sort of thing that type of thing i feel like is universal especially from the experience that i had growing up so that wasn't necessarily hard to to latch on to and the little the little details didn't really matter that they're playing Gaelic football rather than American football or, or baseball in my case, that they're going to their prom and they're uh, able to drink legally. That was a big thing <laughs> for me that it was the, the only thing that, that didn't uh, ring true with me there because, you know, at, at our prom, we had to go into the parking lot and and uh, pull a fifth of some the cheapest liquor you could find out of a backpack and take what's, swigs.
0: What's legal drinking age in the U.S.?
1: 21.
0: Uh, See, so it's 18 here.
1: Ah, uh, so so that makes sense. yeah, so that that those were the only things that really didn't hold up with my experience. but the especially the way the the male characters interacted with one another really rang true because I mean, there are so many times where you, I find myself in a situation listening to a joke or listening to a conversation and regretfully participating or just as a bystander not saying anything because you don't Mm want to be the one that's an outcast and going against the grain. And you may be uncomfortable with some of the, the ideas that people have, especially in this show towards uh, some of the female characters, but in the social hierarchy that is high school, that is secondary school. It's like, you're so deathly afraid of being noticed for the wrong reasons that it dictates every aspect of your personality. And that's one thing that, was shown through connell in particular that rang true with me so universal story just with little details here and there that make it uniquely irish and i enjoyed being able to identify with everything and recognize everything but also pick up on those details that were new to me
0: i see i find that really interesting and it also makes it all the more impressive for me because i i think there's a lot then that would probably go unnoticed by most viewers outside of Ireland and not in a way that's like not in a way that's they're missing something or that the story doesn't feel quite as like richly textured like they've kind of tapered back on the class elements i think compared to the book i don't know if you feel that's true
1: yeah i i do feel that that was highlighted much more in the book or at least approached in a way that made it more obvious
0: there is one, they had one kind of explicit conversation addressing it in the show, which I I don't think there is. Uh, there, there is something similar, I suppose, in, in the book. But that is something that is very much there throughout and the kind of class element that I think would be pretty instantly recognizable, not just in terms of Marianne comes from a wealthy family and Connell. I certainly don't want to say Connell is poor. I again, I don't know what kind of way that balances out. He's just not Marianne. I think he's probably middle class, you know, working class to middle class. But I think he's not far off being kind of middle class. She just happens to be not even middle upper. I think she's pretty upper class. And I, I find when they actually get to college, that difference is more pronounced in a way that I don't know. I don't know. Again, this is where I'm curious to see from your perspective, does that translate? But where I think it's obvious her friends are her friends and her friends are a little bit different. Maybe her friends are just kind of maybe more cultured is one way of putting it, but it's would be a very flattering way of putting it. There is a, there's a clear dynamic and a clear undertone that's certainly there from an Irish perspective where you're like, or even when they get to college and they do go to Trinity College, which again, that in itself is loaded with class implications of her friends and the people he ends up having to spend a lot of time around because of that being very different to him. And even I, I rewatched the series ahead of recording this. And there are a couple of lines where he kind of alludes to, you know, they are your friends and, you know, they aren't exactly sure my friends from from when we were in school they wouldn't be quite the same as they are now you know they're not necessarily the kind of people i want to i agree with i want to be around but these are also your friends there's a very kind of loaded class element to this and even something in the in the show second episode third episode they go to the ghost right which was uh, in the show is called the ghost house you remember this i do in the book I'm 99.9% certain, unless I just read this in a very different way, that it's not a ghost house, it's the ghost estate. Does that ring any bells with you?
1: Doesn't ring a bell, but um, I, right, well, I think I see where you're I, going with this, yeah.
0: Well, I just want to highlight this, because this is one really specific element, I think, of Rooney's book that they did shy away from, but I think a lot of the undertones of it are still there in... What Normal People is, is a TV series. So, like everywhere, but I think more so than most places, Ireland was absolutely devastated by the economic crash of 2008. Uh, We were in a real kind of artificial property-driven boom at the time, and the bubble burst, the whole thing collapsed, and it had pretty catastrophic effects, and one of the results of that it's something that to this day would still be kind of very common in like everyday parlance here and that people would just, you know, it's a term that people are intimately familiar with and something that still comes up a lot in terms of conversations about housing and i guess the the homelessness crisis that that we're going through as a country but there were all of these housing estates just you know, in places where under normal circumstances you may not have been building houses, if like developers weren't didn't have access to just endless money, they may not, for example, in Sligo have been building like just tons of you know tree bedroom, uh semi-detached houses where people were going to move because the industry may not have been there to deal with it. So in the book, the ghost is a ghost estate, which is a very different thing because this is something we have multiple of around the country, which are you know. Construction sites that basically are just unfinished. They could be houses that are like 80% done, houses that are like, looks like a house, looks like it's finished, but it's not finished inside, and they're just laying there dormant. So that has a really kind of strong resonance. And the movie that becomes The Ghost, which almost seems to imply like a haunted house, like, oh, it's just an abandoned house. Which it's fine. It's fine for the TV series. And it, it probably takes a layer that doesn't need to be there for your average viewer. But I think the only reason I bring that up is to that is just the kind of detail that was there that really kind of speaks to, you know, capturing not just Ireland, but these characters' version of Ireland, you know. And particularly even when you get Connell and he goes to college and it's a struggle for him and it's, you know. There's a part of that that's relatable wherever you're from, and it's you know he's working. I think in the show they have him working two jobs at one point. Sure, that's relatable. He's in college; he needs to pay for things. But there there is also an extra undertone to that. There's extra details of where she lives. So I'm really impressed with how it's so packed with like real, real specificity as to the Ireland that the characters grew up in, the Ireland that they're navigating. But that it also just really functions normally it functions fine like the the friend group what is your what is your take on that when they get to college and the dynamics a lot of the people particularly that seem to kind of swarm around marianne to you does that just come across as like oh she's kind of because she's pretty smart she ends up in a social circle that's filled with these kind of like faux intellectuals that everyone comes across in college which part of that is true but i think there is another element at play here
1: to me, other than Joanna, most of the friends that she uh, kind of falls into at Trinity are a lot like those ghost estates that you're mentioning, Adam. Is that they're all on the outside; <laughs> they look they look pretty and nice. They but look they
0: finished have... on the outside, but, but not there's the no there's no
1: substance there. And I think that does come into play with sort of the political undertones that the book has more than the show. I think it, that might be that. You know, on the page, Sally Rooney's political leanings might come across more and might have been more important to her when writing the book rather than people trying to get a TV show that might have broad appeal made. That could be part of it. I know she was heavily involved, but obviously things translate differently from the page. Well, I also
0: think as much as I can still see with a character like Jamie and like there's still lines about, you know, we're not all, you know, the spawn of millionaires or something. I think Connell says to him at some points and his accent alone is a clear like social marker to me i'm like okay i know i know where he's from i know a lot about him that may sound like kind of strange and judgmental but accents in ireland are incredibly varied for the size of the island and uh, this is probably something that just doesn't occur to people i don't know. maybe it does i sound different to connell right
1: yes for sure
0: <laughs> and i feel of all the people to talk accents we've talked a lot about your accent over the years so this is this is appropriate. But there's a real element, um, particularly in Dublin, of, you know, accents as social markers. And someone like Jamie, I can hear him speaking, okay, that's telling me something. But I think the kind of thing that they do well in the show is he needs to be an asshole. And he needs to be a certain kind of person. And they translate that, I think, particularly to American audiences in a certain way with the kind of political views that he comes out with. And his appearance. Necessarily in his appearance too, but they're not necessarily all there in the book. And there's some of the kind of, some of the people around them and you have like the, the free speech thing with the Nazi guy coming to Trinity. That's not exactly like that in the book. It's not entirely invented, but it's not exactly like that. And then later, Jamie makes a comment about Asians. And I think like, ah, okay. They have found another way to, Like effectively communicate something, but in a way that is probably speaking to a wider audience, which those kind of details are interesting. Um, Maybe that sets us up perfectly to look at this as an adaptation, because it's a notoriously difficult task, particularly when a book is like a smash like this one was. and This is a global bestseller. And usually when that happens, people end up disappointed by a screen adaptation. Characters aren't how they imagined them. Significant changes are made or cuts are made to just make it work coherently as something on screen. And I guess some of the details I just mentioned there even point to it. I feel like, and this is incredibly impressive because Sally Rooney was so involved and seemingly did like pretty detailed first passes on everything, specifically the first six episodes she had written before, any other writers were involved she had gone to write them for screen but considering she has never written for screen before i'm kind of bowled over by just how well this was adapted, and then by how well the two cinematographers who worked in the show and abramson and hetty mcdonald actually managed to get it across because this to me is a rare instance where book is great series is great you know there's a case he made the series, uh, I they're different things, so you don't need to get into better, but there's a case he made that the series is better, and I feel like that never happens, and that speaks to, oh, they understand this was something different, they've got to pay respect to it, they've got to recreate what worked for people, but they've also got to tell it in a completely different medium. And to me, anyway, they nailed that. Do you agree with that, first of all, and if so... What do you think are the key elements to that? For you, as someone who had read the book, what was it that when you actually saw it, you said, yeah, this works because they managed to take this from the book and do this with it? So
1: one thing that I think was incredibly important was that the dialogue from the series very closely matches what was in the book. Like some scenes are shot for shot, just conversations that they had in the book. And I think that goes to keeping that authenticity and making it feel like it holds up to what you remember in your mind. Now the rest of it, I won't say that exactly every piece of the the setting matches up to what I was imagining when I was reading it. But when seeing it after the fact, it all fits. It's, it's making an adaptation that's so well known. like putting, uh, A puzzle piece together with a blindfold because what you imagine as a reader might not line up with what someone else imagines as a reader so it's like you said it's a pretty difficult task to accomplish but it it all does fit incredibly well that goes back to sally rooney's involvement like you were saying just keeping it so close to the source material and then it goes down to casting as well in that you have to nail connell and marianne to make this successful you have to find that that quietness and reservedness that that connell has on the page and you have to find that snarky free spirit loner kind of uh mentality that marianne has and then put those words in someone's mouth and (laughs) and make it feel real and all of those together you get something that like you said is on par if not better than the book
0: Yeah, I think the the interesting thing with the casting and getting it, you've got to get someone who channels the energy. You're also never going to get someone who can do it exactly as it is in the book, because the book is not written with, you know, with actors in mind, and certainly with, like, unknown actors, as, as you have cast here. And I think the thing with that is... Whenever an adaptation comes, you've gotta you've gotta find someone who gets the spirit of it and and really works that people will look at and say, Yeah, that's the person. But then you've also gotta kind of let it go with who they actually are as a performer and as a person and let their own energy come into it. And I kind of think in this case, I don't know, maybe you disagree, I found Marianne to be much more confident from the beginning. Like She's coming out with cutting lines right from the off. Like, the first scene is she gets into an argument with her teacher, um, which isn't a scene from the book. And, like, she's... For, for everything that's going on with her life, um, which is something they do make some changes to, not entirely sure why in terms of her mother, but they do make some changes to just the specifics of her home life. But I thought her character comes across as kind of sharper, more blunt, more direct, more assertive right from the off. On the flip side, I actually think Connell on screen is captured by Paul Meskel with uh, an element of vulnerability right from the start that then makes the progression of his arc all the more convincing as the show goes on. I don't think, and something that even I've seen in some of, some of the discourse, whether it's people talking about on podcasts or it's reviews, I don't feel like he ever comes across as the stereotypical star athlete in, in secondary school in this, like you would generally get in, you know, high school story, and it is American football star. Like, people gravitate to him, but he's not asking for it in any way. He's not... He's magnetic in a different kind of way to what it feels like in the book for me. And that made, I I guess, some of the more difficult and darker places he gets to later on more convincing. Because you can see just, you know, you can see the vulnerability right from the start. I don't know, is that just me or if you think I'm off the mark with that? But I, I think both of those things could well align with just... Okay, you get Paul Meskel on set. What's his character? Okay, how do we mesh this with Connell? How does this change it? And then you get Daisy Edgar-Jones, and it's like, okay, well, what does she do? And I, I think maybe part of that dynamic is those slight tweaks and how both characters come off from the beginning. It doesn't change who they are overall. It actually maybe makes it seem more real. You know, we get a gradual progression. There's other things that they progress and kind of other ways that they evolve but there's a kind of a core element that's certainly present in both from start to finish in the TV series, maybe more so than in the novel for me.
1: I, I don't think you're you're far off there. I think I I felt Connor Connell's vulnerability in in the book most of the time, but I do think that it that it is highlighted on screen a little bit more by Paul Meskell. Um, in in terms of Marianne, your point about her being a little more confident, I would agree with that. I think in the novel initially, it's almost like she she it seems like she's a little more victimized by the way she's treated by mm-hmm. uh, the kids in school in particular. Where on screen, it, she's dishing it right back out f- from the start, and there's a confidence there, and she doesn't need their approval and she doesn't care about their approval. So there's a, a little bit a bit of a difference there because sh- she knows their ass hats and that she she doesn't need uh I, I can't remember the the female character that uh is is the uh leader of that type Rachel. Of rachel yes yeah, she doesn't she doesn't need to be liked or to be friends with rachel she doesn't care what rachel thinks that sort of thing
0: so going just into even more detail on um Colin and marianne but paul mescal and daisy Edgar jones um as the two leads as i mentioned i mean essentially unknowns. They are unknowns coming into this. I think it's safe to say they are no longer unknowns. They may well go on to have very big careers. I mean, the way the show was set up, something we didn't mention, I guess, is that the novel is kind of alternates between the two characters' perspectives from chapter to chapter. So we really get to know both on an equal footing. And although they don't entirely follow that structure on screen there's a general shape of it in terms of you know an episode here for that person episode here then some episodes that are really both of their episodes but this is to me very much a two-hander like there may be some people who feel like one character comes out more as you know it's that person's story it's that person's show or one way or another or that one actor steals it from the other but I, i think both are putting in really incredible performances here really memorable performances too importantly kind of separate from what they're doing individually they just seem like a perfect match they're like they mesh so well together which this is like integral like more than even just casting the characters individually it's casting two actors with that kind of chemistry I believe how it actually progressed was they found Paul Meskell and they said, yeah, that's Connell. And then they went through a pretty arduous kind of process to try and find Marianne and find the right person. And I believe he had pretty significant say in that because Daisy Edgar Jones walked in red with him. And when she left, he was like, yeah, that's it. That's the person. And maybe that's how you have to do this. You have to kind of find one and then let the let that person play a pretty significant role in it because they have to have a more than believable chemistry i mean the chemistry drives the show we're like quite a long way into this episode and we haven't even touched on you know we'll get to the romance of it shortly but it's a pretty racy show it's safe to say yeah and that's certainly driven a lot of the conversation around it but central to that is then you've got to believe these two characters these two actors actually have a real connection a really deep connection and that happens in a way that it's not too easy to recall so many other examples of two people just appearing on screen clicking with each other both putting in singularly and then collectively putting in performances that are mind-blowing where you come out the other side and you're like these two people could be really significant actors they could also be not just significant actors, they could be stars. like there's a there's a difference in that. I think both of these people also have star potential. What are your thoughts on the two performances?
1: Yeah, I agree completely because they both have to accomplish things separately, but also together. There's Connell's quiet kind of awkwardness as he adjusts to any situation he has, whether he's the most popular person in school. Or he's a social outcast. He still has that same quiet demeanor where he's processing what's going on around him and, and doesn't quite know how to react to the world. Um, and then she has to be first the the biting, sarcastic social at, outcast, and then uh, the girl that every guy wants to be with and every girl wants to be friends with. Once she gets the Trinity, so they kind of have to to balance two different types of performances. And then, like you said, their performances. Together are particularly important, and that's shown when they're when they're having conversations and and flirting with one another and and arguing with one another that they that they have that chemistry and that they have that connection and that these are two people that just need to be in each other's lives. And Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar do a great job of of putting all that together. And then, like you said, there's the physicality of everything, and it, it sounds weird, but it's just like the way that they interact with one another during these sex scenes has to feel authentic. And all of those scenes, uh, they feel they feel romantic. They feel intimate. They're also a little awkward and, and true to life and that every single time, not everything's going exactly as planned. And they just knock it out of the park. And like you said, as you're watching this, you're thinking, these are two people that I'm going to see on screen for the next 30 years because they just they're just like magnetic and incredibly easy to watch.
0: Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's not even kind of fully transitioning out of talking about the performances because it's very much tied to those two actors still. But let's talk a little bit about that. um, The portrayal of love of romance, of sex on screen and normal people. It's funny. This is where in the U S this is a Hulu show and it's all available. Like one, One batch, go binge from there. In the BBC, um, they were showing it. They put it up on BBC Tree, which is their online service, all available in one batch. I think it's also on BBC One, week to week. Here in Ireland, it's on our national broadcaster, RTE. And when I heard this was going to happen after reading the book, I was like, hmm. Uh, There are going to be a lot of old, very Catholic women who are very upset about this and are going to really have their eyes open, and that is what has happened. Uh, There has been quite a bit of commotion in pretty funny ways, I think, to most people, um, since this show has aired. But I would say I'm pretty confident nothing as racy and as explicit as this show has probably ever aired on that particular channel here. We don't really have a like-for-like comparison where I could give you, but there is, I mean, it's almost like, imagine if this show was on at like 10 p.m. on ABC. That's kind of the comparison. It's like that's the show has just been dropped compared to the usual kind of programming that would be there. Not quite. It's not it's not quite the kind of the sanitized network TV, the the model that there is in the US. But I, I think that might be the closest approximation to explaining that. So it has caused something of a furora here. Having said that, I think this show does something really, really difficult and really, really impressive in that it kind of covers all angles of what they need that to be. They need people to be able to say, are those scenes, like, are they romantic? Are they sexy? Yes. Are they also, like, really mechanical and not that at all? I think the answer is yes. Yes. District me in the rewatch, particularly. I guess because, like, I have memories of it. I've seen it. I know exactly what way they're going to frame it, what way they're going to put this together. Like, sex and the relationship between the two of them play such an outsized role in the story that the first time you see it, you're like, well, how exactly are they going to do this? And, you know, like, <laughs> are there going to be episodes where that's just it? That's the episode, almost? The second time watching it, I was like, it's actually... Pretty incredible how little is shown in the way this is framed, Um, particularly early on, which I think is a testament to Abramson, that you could both say, like, this is pretty kind of graphic and very much upfront about everything, but it is also holding everything back in a way that's kind of, I don't know, almost, almost respectful of the character's privacy and the moment that they're in. There's a very strange balancing act, I think, that you kind of need to tread with this. And I'm kind of blown away by how it seems like they've done it.
1: They're pretty economical with everything, I'll say. Like, there's...
0: They're they're not entirely. There's one episode. I don't know. Maybe you could even have a guess at what number. Uh... Four...
1: I'm, I'm having a tough time. Picturing. Maybe not
0: four. There is one episode, we'll say in the three to six range. Might even be six. It might even be Abramson's last episode. Where there's like ten minutes. <laughs> that, that, I don't even think it just feels like that. I think there might be ten minutes to almost open the episode that are exclusively scenes of them having sex or naked in bed or whatever. And then like the last five ish minutes of the episode has a lot of that too. Like it's, it's not, it's not kind of, it's not chickening out of it in any way, but yet I don't think it's being excessive. Like it's not, there are shows where there are shows where there could be one sex scene that uh, it just, it's like, Whoa. Okay. That's really, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's so central and it's so deeply rooted in the characters And most importantly, and I think something that like maybe hasn't always been communicated when people talk about it, because there's an element of the conversation around the show, which is just like, whoa, those scenes are doing a lot of character work, a lot. And they're telling us about where those people are, the relationship between them, also kind of how their lives are progressing. I mean, there is legitimate changes across the course of the show. But I don't know, is it that it's almost normalized because they don't shy away and there's there are plenty of instances throughout the series, but I, I think there are shows where there could be one scene and I'm like, okay, this is this is like pretty jarring and this is like purely there for titillation, which is certainly not the case with with normal people.
1: Right. And I think having having read the book, we're probably a little more conditioned to understand that this is necessary for the story and for the development of their relationship. It's not like like a show that i love adam game of thrones game of thrones <laughs> saved the last se- season or whatever we won't get into that. It's, it's i can't show- get over that unfortunately. yeah yeah i it's i've been thinking about it lately because we're in quarantine and i have nothing to think about i thought about rewatching it i said no i can't i'll get to the end to get pissed off can't do it but uh there's a lot of times in that show where nudity or sex was really let's just say it was just thrown in there for the sake of doing that they were like we got this is HBO. We can do whatever the fuck we want. We're going to have this gratuitous nude scene for no reason. L- love most of the show. That's that's just a fact. This show is not like that.
0: I can only, just the, just the point of that, and I feel comfortable talking about it, uh, because I think you know anyone who's going to watch Game of Thrones has watched it by now, so we can talk about something that does happen in a later season. I wonder, can you guess? I could think of one scene. It's not perfect, but I can think of one sex scene in all of Game of Thrones where I, it serves character, it serves the story. I think it was delicately captured and, you know, made sense of the show. Can you guess what that is?
1: Was it Arya?
0: No, it wasn't. I don't, I'm not entirely convinced of that one. Okay. Missa- Missandei and Grey were.
1: Okay, yeah, 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 100%. I, I wasn't I coming that... out mind just because of the absence of certain things, but go ahead. <laughs>
0: But I think that is a scene that you can almost map onto. Like, that, that scene is doing character work much like a lot of these scenes are in normal people.
1: So they were one, like it, it's one crucial
0: to it's Well, yeah, pretty much. It's crucial to their relationship. But part of that is HBO, and it's what you said. And it's also, you know, that's a driver for people to watch shows. Like, let's make no mistake about it. Like, And it even is in this case. I think they're not... They're not likely to be too disappointed that it became a talking point in any way, because let's face it, lots of people are going to tune in as a result. Like that's, that's a feature, but I think it manages to do something in this show that you rarely see happen. Now, maybe part of that is it's not all that common that any kind of movie or TV show has to rely on those scenes to advance its story and to make its story and its characters believable in quite the way that this one does, so maybe you've got to figure that out in a different way. But I, I just think like the work they've done with that is it's so central to this just working as a success, and it's not like like if we were doing a spoiler episode and we were talking about like our favorite scenes, our key scenes throughout, they're not scenes we're going to talk about, and yet they they probably are the most important for how they're executed and how it then informs everything that's said before and after them, essentially.
1: I, I think it's part of the intensity of their relationship, because we get a lot of that from the conversations they have and the things that they're willing to share with one another that they won't share with anyone else. But then then there's that also, the intense nature of their physical chemistry that is something that keeps bringing them back together, because they, they make note several times of, like, it, it's not like this with other people. Like, you and I have something special that we can't replicate anytime we try to somewhere else and in Marianne's case trying to rep rep not necessarily replicate replicate it but replace it through other means based on relationships with people that have certain proclivities Uh, you can see that when you watch the show people but yeah a lot has been made also about the uh, intimacy coordinator that they had yes when when filming so I think that's another aspect and that Knowing that this was handled in such a respectful way <laughs> that took into consideration the comfort of the actors, especially in, in a post Me Too era, I think is really important. And that also, like you said, they're not shying away from anything. It all serves the characters in the story, but it's not gratuitous.
0: The other thing I want to talk about while we're on the kind of how love and romance is captured in this show. And this is really bringing it back to Abramson. And I, I think one of the one of the more interesting things he's done, it's not like a massive thing. It's very simple, but this feeds into even how you were mentioning, you know, perspective and how room looks different depending on if we're seeing it through Bree Larson's character's eyes or Jacob Tremblay's eyes. This being a story about two people and yet you've got these other, I mean, recurring characters who are important and they themselves inform the story and they feed into the characters and the journey they go on. But it is essentially just about these two people. And we talk about, you know, the break in terms of structure in the book where you've got, you know, a chapter from this person's perspective, chapter from that person's perspective. And it's like, how do you capture that on screen? And what the show does and particularly does in the first half and um, when Abramson is directing, i I do think it is the best directed. i maybe my favorite episode is in the the second half, but i I think the overall consistency, the best direction certainly comes at the front. And it does establish a tone that is obviously continued beyond that. But there's two things he does, and that is close ups and really big close ups play a really important role particularly when we're just kind of locking in on those two characters and if someone else features you know we're gonna get wider shots we're gonna get longer takes if they're interacting um if they're literally not like (laughs) lying beside each other in the same shot you're gonna get close-ups and you're gonna just go shot reverse shot and cut from one to the other close-up to close-up so as an audience you're really seeing their eyes you're really seeing and feeling the kind of intensity of the relationship as it builds. And the other side of that is how it's shot and the lens choices, particularly. I mean, this is shot with super shallow focus. Like, really small depth of field in a way that's more stylized than you ever really see on TV. Like this is this is super cinematic. And I, I hate doing this. We're talking about TV and we opened with like, you know. Oh, uh, movie directors and TV, this looks super cinematic because of that choice. And I think effectively what that choice does for the characters is when they are on screen, we're getting these lenses where we're dealing with real shallow focus, and you are only seeing them. Everything outside of them, everything outside of their faces, is obscured in the world around them. And there's there's even quite a few scenes where this is kind of played around with where I don't know, other characters, let's say Jamie is sitting near Marianne and he may be there and he may be saying something, but he is out of focus because, you know, Jamie, this is not your story. And it's a simple choice, but it's the kind of thing that I don't know. I don't feel like he's necessarily made in all of his movies. It's certainly something later in Abramson's career that has come more to the fore where you can see he's very much kind of conscious of, okay, well, how can I make the camera work for the character? And in this case, I think it's crucial to allow the audience to just kind of slip into their world, feel like you're completely enveloped by it, and add a layer of intimacy that's just essential for it working, like, essential the same way, like, the score is for creating a certain mood, like, there's an element of needing some sort of privacy in these moments that are often incredibly public, but are deeply personal. And deeply intimate for these two people, and the shallow depth of field really, really does that. And it's not, it's not revolutionary. This is not something that no one has ever done, but it is. It's the kind of tool that, like, I think of Barry Jenkins using in Moonlight and using in If Beale Street Could Talk, um, a key moments, and it's used like throughout here. Like, it has a very distinct look that I think even someone who doesn't necessarily know the difference between, okay, well, what is, what is this type of lens going to do versus that type of lens? Why is it blurred in the background? Why am I just getting this ultra sharp kind of big close up of a face and everything else is blurred? You don't have to know the reason behind that, but you will recognize, okay, that's different. And that is having an effect on how the storytelling is being kind of communicated to me.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because I'm not someone that would pick up on the technical aspect or what exactly <laughs> he's doing or how, what you would call it, but the way he does frame things or shoot things does shape how I'm able to view the story, and and it does, like you said, highlight whose story this is and, and who are the most important people in the room. As if we didn't know, it's Connell and Marianne, but, but those little subtleties.
0: Without that attention to detail, though, you know, you open up the door for, say, a Peggy coming in and that performance being the most magnetic in the show and that when she's in the frame, the audience are just naturally drawn to her. Like, it doesn't actually allow that. I think that also then, like, boosts up the impact of the two lead performances. I think they're all the better for how visually the show just says, no, this is who you're looking at. This This is what you're watching. And these are the faces you're going to be looking at. Like, these other people are here. Sure, they'll get their moments. You'll see them. But the style, like, there there aren't. Maybe I'll watch through again sometime and I'll find one or two. But Peggy doesn't get those close-ups, you know? That's, that's a tough break if you're any other actor in this show and you want these great big close-ups. But they're not the kind of shots you're getting. You're getting kind of medium close-ups at best and with nowhere near the shallow depth of field. So, you know, you're seeing objects in the background where when Marianne or Connell are on the screen, you're just seeing their face and everything else is blurred out behind them. Like that is it's a simple choice. It's the kind of basic choice that really in any filmmaking for, you know, the big screen or for TV, it doesn't matter. Like people should be considering, but I don't feel like they necessarily always do. Art certainly doesn't always come across as effectively as it does in telling us this story is about these two people. And we're going to use this to help you get lost in their story.
1: We can get into my love-hate with Peggy um, offline.
0: I look forward to it. Final thoughts, Andrew. Normal people first, then I guess then Lenny Abramson.
1: Normal people, so... I mean, we haven't had a lot of television or new movies released in 2020 just because of the situation we're, that we're in. So I'll say it's the best thing I've read and the, it's the best thing I've watched in, in 2020 or that came out in, in 2020. So I, I highly recommend it, if, especially if you, if you like the kind of things that I'm drawn to the, the character driven types of things, relationship driven things, it's something you should definitely read and then watch.
0: If you're old, I want to be reminded of your youth, right? This is what we established. That,
1: that too. If you're old and you're like, well, what was it like to <laughs> to drink cheap beer and listen to Kanye in 2011? If if that is appealing to you as well, um, there's that aspect. Uh, as far as, as Lenny goes, I think there's a lot to like in his films. I like some more than others. I think what Richard did and Frank in particular are both worth watching for, for different reasons. What Richard did is, is my favorite of his movies. I think it's uh, a really, really well-crafted character actor driven um, drama that uh, I really enjoyed. It is it, weird to say enjoyed, but you'll figure that out when you watch it.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and like, uh, like you said, whatever he does next, it's, it's hearing his name. Now I'll say, okay, I, I want to go check that out just because I'm intrigued by what type of story he's going to tell next. I would hope that it's that intensely personal Irish set story, because I think he does that incredibly well, but what, whatever it is, I'll, I'll go into it with an open mind because I, normal people absolutely lived up to my expectations after reading the book. And I, I think he did an incredible job with it.
0: Yeah. The thing with what I is, you know, he's not a writer director he's a director and as much as his role in developing these stories is more extensive than a lot of directors generally would have the luxury to in his kind of position he is reliant on the material and if he got the right material and the right kind of writers want to work with him he could have an incredible career and the kind of career that i think doesn't really exist anymore you know the kind of career in the 70s where you'd have like I don't know, a Sidney Lumet kind of character who they were versatile, but really they were just great at locking on characters and great at getting the best out of actors. Like Lumet is a director who brings the best out of actors. There's a lot of Cassavetes in what Abramson wants to do with his movies. I mean, I don't think it's any knock that he doesn't necessarily always successfully emulate Cassavetes. Not sure anyone does, he's Cassavetes. But these are the kind of figures that I think you can see okay, like there's that kind of path to a career for him. And I'm very curious to see what happens next when now he's not just, you know, oh, someone who when you're doing up promotional materials and you're doing up trailers, you don't you don't now just have from Academy Award nominee Lenny Abramson. You also have, you know, any article, any profile, anything related to anything he ever does again. And now in addition to him being Academy Award nominee, it will also have, you know, director of normal people because that's the kind of success this has had and look we haven't even got to the time of year when you know awards and everything will come into the conversation maybe timing is just wrong and that won't work out and tv awards are uh, their own very strange and unpredictable beasts but i wouldn't be shocked if there are awards you know to come for normal people we'll see on that uh, as for normal people i just think it's totally engrossing it I find it deeply relatable. The fact that you also find it really relatable and there's no barrier to that speaks to just how good it is that it manages to be something so specific that I think for someone outside of Ireland that you could introduce you to a world that is different in some ways, you know, something that is new, something you certainly don't see on screen much, may never have seen on screen before. That's one thing. And yet it does that without it being entirely foreign to you where you can't grasp what you're watching. It's anchored by two unbelievable performances, two actors we could be watching and things for a long, long time to come. And it is not just probably one of the better TV shows of this year. It's one of the better shows I can think of in recent years. It's really a pretty special work. Something we haven't mentioned really at all also is like the episodes super short. Like this is how TV should be made. On our old podcast, we used to talk about TV more. I think this is a conversation we had, and I know I've certainly, anytime, even in real-life conversations, I talk to people about TV, it's like, you know what's good? 30-minute dramas. Make more of them.
1: Yes. Wholeheartedly, especially for my lazy ass.
0: All right. That does it for this episode. We are not done with directors mostly associated with movies working in TV because we're going to do, what's essentially our second episode in what will likely be an ongoing series of these, next week when this is going to shock people who know andrew snyder but we are going to take a closer look at the films of one damien chazelle director of whiplash la la land first man also guy and madeline on a park bench which let's hope we can get let's hope we can track that one down and more recently the eddie Um, chazelle has directed the first two episodes of the eddie i believe a six-part miniseries on netflix very much musical in its spirit not entirely musical in terms of song and dance but music plays a major role in it jazz plays a major role in it this is kind of tried and tested uh, territory for chazelle something that andrew has loved and neither of us have watched any of it yet. We will watch it for next week. We'll talk a little bit about that, and we'll talk about Chazelle's movies. Are you excited, Andrew?
1: I'm very excited, Adam. I will very likely watch Whiplash and the final two episodes of The Last Dance in very like close proximity to one another. So who knows what kind of mindset I'm going to have towards leadership coming into next week?
0: All right. Until the next time, make sure you subscribe to us on wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at uh, CapturedOnCell. Likewise, like our page on Facebook. If you wish, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you like this episode, it's the first one you listen to. If you've listened to a few episodes, feel free to go and leave us a rating, review wherever you listen the podcasts. Spread the word. Tell people about it if you're enjoying it so far. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. Thanks as always for listening. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Facts, experts, and science over conspiracy theories. Thanks, Adam.